This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous range of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device on the planet, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, etc. And here is the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Drift, The Unmooring of American Military Power, the new book by Rachel Maddow, or how about Lord of Misrule by Jamie Gordon, or Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann, both of which are winners of the National Book Award. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge, and if you do this, if you go get the free book, it helps the show, I get a few bucks, it's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people, Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a wonderful deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is what you downloaded. This is what you uploaded. Thank you for being here. Thanks for tuning in. It's great to be with you as always. Uh, What can I say? It's hot. It's summer. The sun is a fiery ball. It is burning. There is a drought. The wheat fields are drying up. The trees are wilting. I have been indoors for much of the day out here uh, at the edge of the country in the desert of Los Angeles. And uh, I have been fixated lately on a quote from Carl Sagan. It's sort of been the defining quote of my week, uh, the late, great Carl Sagan. It appeared on my computer screen. I think it was on my Facebook wall. Uh, It's one of those photographs with a quote on it. Is there a name for these things? Uh, I tend to see them everywhere, uh, increasingly so as a form of communication between people, sort of a way to catch uh, the attention of others with a mixed media message and also a way to uh, co-opt the profundity of other human beings. And so in this instance, I was sitting there at my desk and there before me was a picture and it was taken from the Voyager 1 spacecraft. So perhaps you've seen this. I think it's going around the internet, but uh, the photograph or the image features uh, not a whole lot, actually. It's just the, the deep blackness of outer space And then over on the right side of the image, there is what appears to be a beam of light, a slightly arcing beam of light. And then in that beam of light, somewhere near the bottom, is a a very small dot. And it is a dot uh, like the size of like a a pinprick, you know, a tiny, tiny little dot uh, right there in that beam of light. And so then uh, on this image over to the left is a quote from Sagan uh, where he says, uh, look again at that dot. That is here, that is home, that is earth, Uh, you know, on it, everyone you love, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives, the aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, dot, 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 all of them lived out their lives here on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And so uh, that would appear to be the truth, I guess. That's the reality that we're living right now. 
when you really think about it. And uh, I am talking into this microphone right now and will later uh, compress the resulting audio file and then distribute that audio file onto the internet and into the world and ultimately uh, into your ears and now into your brain. And all of this is happening on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam, essentially. It's too much to process. Uh, It's one of those things that makes me happy and sad at the same time. And uh, it somehow sort of reminds me uh, that this will all be over very quickly and that it is probably a good idea uh, to maintain one's sense of humor. Uh, My guest today is Jess Walter. Uh, He's a very accomplished writer. Uh, His books include Citizen Vince, for which he won an Edgar Award, uh, a book called The Zero, for which he was nominated for a National Book Award, uh, a novel called The Financial Lives of the Poets, which came out in 2009 and was met with huge critical acclaim. And now uh, he's just published a novel called Beautiful Ruins. It is available in hardcover uh, from Harper right now, and it is generating uh, the kinds of superlative uh, critical responses of which all authors dream. Uh, like the word masterpiece is being thrown around, and uh, the New York Times Book Review calls it, uh, quote, a high-wire feat of bravura storytelling. So uh, very happy to have Jess here on the program, and he and I are going to be having a conversation right about now. I mean, I, th- I think I've always loved the idea of L.A., um, but like a lot of people, the L.A. I want to live in probably existed in about 1972. You know, I wanted to um, I wanted to sleep with Joan Didion and go watch Gail Goodrich uh, play <laughs> for the Lakers, you know. And, <laughs> right. uh, um, but I, but I, I worked, I've worked off and on down here, mostly off um, a little bit since 1995. My first book um, about Ruby Ridge was made into a miniseries for CBS. And it was so wildly overwhelming, the whole thing. But I always find myself drawn back. I mean, I think, to you know, as a writer, you want to work in sort of the dominant form of your time. And, you know, that's still movies and television. And Do you think that it's changing at all? Oh, yeah, it's changing all the time. And I don't even know that the center of it is necessarily here anymore. I think the business end of it is here. But I think in a kind of grand way, it's been fractured and sent all over the place. I know amazing filmmakers working in Pittsburgh and, um, you know, Vancouver and Spokane, Washington, you know. So, um, but but this is still the place we think of. And when we say Hollywood, we mean um, really uh, the media that is that is the most omnipresent, you know, television and movies. Um, and and the novel. Uh, anytime you uh, start to use the word meditation with your novel, it's um, a bad idea. But if it's anything, it is a meditation about the way we tell stories and and how our lives are defined in that way. And so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have always had a kind of fascination with this place and I've written a handful of scripts over the years, sometimes adapting my own work. Um, and other times I've written a couple of spec scripts with a writing partner, no, uh, a friend of mine from Spokane. Um, and we've sold them. So, uh, so I, I like it. I always love working down here and, um, you know, and I'll, I'll have the same cynical reaction people will sometimes, but I'm always hopeful the next time, you know, it's like, Ooh, that stove is hot. Ooh, that stove is hot. Ooh, that stove is hot. Uh, well, but no, and it's, uh, you know, I, it, it's hard not to have mixed feelings, uh, about a place like Los Angeles, yeah. you know, anything that the, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like a natural reaction. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I sort of mistrust yeah. anybody who 
would find it all good or all bad, yeah, right. you know. Well, and, I, and I, you know, and we we all do this where we romanticize the place um, as it was. Uh, but I I had a I mean I I grew up in Spokane, Washington. Didn't go on an airplane until I was twenty. Um, you know, didn't go east of Wyoming until my first book was published, and I had to go to New York. So um, I, I I was fairly you know I didn't get to travel. So the first time I came to L.A., it was everything I dreamed would be. There were actual palm trees and. Right. And there was a beach, and well, and it's also uh, it's it was, a, it's a city that's built on the creative arts. It is that's yeah. the dominant industry, yeah. and I, don't, I think there there's something uh, great about that. Yeah, and and I think that impulse to to create stories um, as cynical as we get about Hollywood, I think in a way the novel makes a sort of pivot. Um, Beautiful Ruins makes a kind of pivot into the hopeful. You know, these people are endlessly hopeful. Um, you know, it's not a cynical place. It's a it's a weirdly idealistic and um, hopeful place. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think the cynicism it might come later. Right, right. But yeah. just, you know, that's the part of it that I think I romanticize the most is just the idea uh, of people coming here with that yeah. sort of hope and, like, thinking they can actualize. Are you, are you from here? Originally? No, I'm from oh. the Midwest. Oh, you are? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I, uh, like, Wisconsin and oh, Indiana. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I wound up here somehow. Yeah. And I right. think, you know, I nursed at least some of those dreams when I was, like, a young person, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, it, there's, I don't know. I, I, I love the place in a weird way. Yeah. I had this daydream of being, for a while, of being a screenwriter. Uh, and it's not... It's a form that I like, but it's my third or fourth best form. You know, I'm, I think I'm primarily a novelist. I think that's what I do best and it's certainly what I enjoy the most. Um, but sometimes, it's, uh, you know, some stories lend themselves to scripts or um, some ideas. And, you know, and sometimes it's to pay the bills or whatever reason. But, uh, but I had this idea that maybe I'd come here and be a screenwriter. And I was, I was represented by ICM at the time. And I was sitting there waiting in, this, uh, in the lobby to go speak to my agent. And I had my little round glasses on. I had my sports coat over my T-shirt. And <laughs> I looked around and there were like eight guys with little round glasses and sports coats yeah. over their t-shirts it's like the it, costume yeah and i thought oh my god i'm one of these guys you know right in spokane i'm still you know people introduce me as the writer you know and um <laughs> maybe i'm addicted to the to the uh, fish in a small pond but it's um i i do like being in a place where i i don't feel like i'm a i'm a brand you know i'm one of those yeah i know i just did uh, you, you just the the mention of that word yeah i feel like it more and more people talk about it and i've actually written about it a little bit or tweeted about Which it or brand something. or writer brand oh God, <laughs> but writer too <laughs> yeah right but no they're but just they're both profane yeah, yeah there's some yeah. there's something profane right. about it and it makes it's me totally feel totally profane but it, but yet it's it, it's unavoidable and I think it is avoidable. You know, I think every you time... You think it is avoidable? Yeah. I, I think anytime someone says brand to you, you rebel. I mean, I started out writing nonfiction, and I was told, write more nonfiction. And I said, no, I want to write a novel. And I wrote a novel that was called Crime Fiction. And they said, write, write mysteries. And then I won an Edgar Award. And they said, you're a, you're a mystery writer. And um, I... I think being pigeonholed is one of the worst things that can happen for any artist. You know, I mean, it's to have your work shrunk that way to one section of the bookstore, one kind of writing. Um, you know, to me, you're trying, you know, you're, you're trying to, to express your view of the world and that's not going to fit neatly into one genre. So I, I think, um, you know, I, I, for me, it's been a really simple process. I write the next book I want to read. And sometimes that's been a novel that's been noirish in style. Um, 
you know, other times it's been, I think Beautiful Ruins is a much more expansive novel, both in language and character and what it tries to set out to do. Um, I, you know, the next novel might be something else entirely. Uh, I have a book of short stories coming out, a lot of which in March, a lot of which are um, dark and noirish and you know, tight. Um, whereas I think of a book like beautiful ruins as being much looser. So yeah, I think I, I, and not every writer is going to, is going to feel that way. But for me, I do think it's something you can fight, you know, the, um, you know, as soon as you know what the Jess Walter brand is, then, um, you know, to me that, that, that makes what you do a lot less interesting. Well, yeah. And then, but what about, I guess, and I guess I would agree with you there, especially in the approach to your creative work, you know, but it also, um, you know, I think it also applies to the uh, marketing of that sure. work, right. you know, like your self-presentation, whether it's online or elsewhere. Right. And so um, I feel like brand management you know, is <laughs> yeah. something that people are yeah. And it, it just drives me crazy. And so when right. I say it's unavoidable, I mean that, like, you run into it everywhere yeah. and you might engage in it even when you don't mean to or something. And, and I worry about that. I mean, I um, because I think you do have to do so much more self-promotion now. And, and in the novel, there's a character named Pat, who's a musician who talks about that, who says when he was a kid, if a band did what bands have to do now, they would immediately be sellouts. You know, you don't, wouldn't start a MySpace page and, and tell all your friends where you're playing. I mean, you just go play or sell your music to a commercial. Right. Yeah. I mean, it used (laughs) to be, I I remember gasping when you'd hear a a song on a car commercial. And now if it's on, if it's released as a single before a car commercial, it seems as if something strange has happened. That's how bands break. It is right. And that, and, and so I understand as, you know, as a writer tries to make a living writing, I totally understand, you know, and I've heard writers talk about their platform. They're building a platform. They have this many followers and it's another, um, another, that word that, friends, another right? word that gets me <laughs> brand and platform. Yeah. And I, I understand these things are necessary, but if you believe in them, um, you know, and if you use them, I mean, I, I have, a, I have a Twitter account and, um, uh, the only time I ever tweet about an event is if I feel like no one's going to be there and it's total fear and shame that causes me to do it. You know, that's uh, the, I think fear and shame yes, is what causes right. most, uh, it probably online, is online. Right. Right. Chatter. <laughs> um, but, and so I understand why it has to be done, but I think of, I mean, imagine, Imagine that Don DeLillo is not Don DeLillo now, but he's some 22-year-old somewhere. I've actually um, no, I've actually talked. I want to say about this and about him on this show before, yeah. because he strikes me as the kind of author who doesn't have an ounce of that in him. Right. He, he doesn't even have a computer. I mean, he still he still sends letters that he types. You know, and so the, the fear for me is that out there there's a writer like Don DeLillo or Cormac McCarthy who are repelled by that, and that's a pretty natural artistic. Um, uh, response to be repelled by self-promotion and, um, you know, and to be repelled by, uh, creating a version of yourself that is not as authentic as maybe you feel like it should be. And so what I try to do when I do go on Facebook or I am on Twitter is to, is to try to be authentic and to try, you know, and, uh, again, it's not like some great, uh, discovery, but, um, but I think it's the only way I can kind of, uh, reconcile the fact that I'm doing something that if, if the artists I grew up liking did, I wouldn't respect it. Yeah. Uh, so I, and I think everyone has to find a place where they can respect it. And I, and I think it's a generational thing too. I see, I, I marvel at people who are able to have, 
you know, a Twitter account that does feel like an expression of some kind of artistic thing. You know, they, um, it does feel like their authentic self. Um, and it doesn't for me, um, entirely, you know, I try to use it in a way that it does. Um, and then, and like I said, I worry about, you know, those artists who don't have a knack for self-promotion, for building a platform, for creating a brand. Well, you could be losing the work of a lot of, right. know, it could be falling by the wayside. You and, know. I, and I also keep waiting for a great punk movement to come sweep all that shit away too, you know, to just, um, you know, to in the same way that, you know, punk responded to uh, the over slick overproduced music scene um, that, and, and I'm not just talking specifically about writing, but about our culture, this, um, this kind of self produced uh, slickness that, you know, that seems to come about, um, you know, on, on, you know, various social media and things. And again, I'll be too old to be part of that punk movement. You know, they'll, wherever it's happening, they'll throw me out, but um, see, I'm, I'm the kind I'll of be supportive of Yeah. Right. I'm the kind of person, like I, I, I ache when I think about that. Like I love, I, I, I have, a, a, I think, like a lot of self-consciousness when it comes to uh, getting older, as we all do, and uh, becoming stuck in one's ways. Right. And I think it's because I always uh, noticed it as a, as a young person sure. when I would you know, listen, to, or, or even now when I listen to friends of mine talking about how they hate new things, whether yeah, it's right. new art or new music, and they, like, they right. only like the old or they only right. like the right. stuff they liked when they were 17 right. or whatever, and... Uh, that sort of attitude really bothers me. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and and that is the other side of it. I think is um, not you know not writing those things off um, uh, because I, I read a New Yorker piece. I think it was about how we listen to music and uh, and we cut like neural pathways in for songs. And we and when we're young, if you think of of your brain as a sort of forest and those trails you cut for a song, so you'll hear. You know, um, I'll hear a couple seconds of Loverboy, and to my deep shame, all the lyrics come flooding into my mind, you know, because that path was cut so long ago, um, that neural pathway that I can immediately access. You mean like working for the weekend? That's all? If you want, I'll sing it. Um, <laughs> Go for I, it. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I, can hear, uh, I can hear people clicking off. If, uh, uh, <laughs> He's singing Loverboy. Um, and not very well. But, uh, uh, and yet I'll hear some great song, and I can't remember the band, you know, and, and, this story you know sort of showed brain science as cutting those neural pathways um, and and when you get to a certain age the path is so overgrown that those old trails are well are well traveled but it's hard um, uh, and and they were doing they were doing experiments in which uh, older people couldn't even discern between songs they couldn't um, tell what song they were hearing they they, they would be repeated to them in the process and they wouldn't be able to hear it uh. um, so i think there's something neurological about it uh, there is something just you know old and stubborn about it too well but and then like from the artistic perspective too like i always found just to like stay with music sure that you find that uh musicians i think that age well never stop listening to everything right do you know what i'm saying yeah. like oh, there's yeah. sort, of, sort of like this omnivorous yeah approach and they remain fans yes right. you know like yeah. you think of like you know, i don't know i just feel like like a guy like David Bowie, for instance, right, he's right. not, nothing's getting past no, him. Right. Do you know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. No, I think David Bowie's iPod is probably a lot more interesting than mine. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. And, but, and, and it's not snobbish either. Yeah. And I try to be that way with writing. I mean, I try to, um, you know, I, I know people who will say nothing great has been written since fill in the date, you know, and I was a, I was a judge for the national book awards, uh, in 2008. Um, and it was uh, one of those remarkable, uh, life-changing things because I read 
uh, all the time, like most writers do, but to be to get a, a, an entire to, to get an entire swath of literature for a year uh, and to be able to sample all of it, it, you know, it's like it was it was incredible. And when people tell me no one's writing great modernism, no one's writing this or that, I, I, I found I was. I marveled at the books that were being written that, you know, people don't find out about, don't hear about. I mean, there were so many great books. I, mean, I, I take that back. Um, I was told by another judge that I would think there were so many very good books and so few great books. And that was what I found. There were so many books that were very good that deserved a bigger audience than they got. Uh, there weren't many that, you know, that just floored you and said, this will be studied a hundred years later. Um, but it was, it was still an amazing process to have 270 books, dropped on your porch and to be told you've got 10 months to read them and pick five finalists. Um, That's what happened. I was going to ask you what that yeah, process is yeah. like. You're, you're a judge for the National Book Awards yeah. and they deliver you, like they cut it down to 270? Well, no, that's how many, uh, I think it's 314 this year. It, go, it goes up. I mean, all, anyone can enter. And I said, but we don't read them all, right? And they said, no, you read them all. Uh, you can't finish 270 books. So hopefully you get in, far enough in that something in the writing um, uh, either distinguishes itself or eliminates it from consideration. And if you can think about the 270 books that are published, you are able to eliminate a lot of them. I don't know how many I finished, 100, 110, which still, you know, in the eight months or whatever, you know, of real reading. It's a hell of a um, lot of reading. It is. And it, and it became my job. You know, I would get up and write in the morning as I always do. But after about 10 a.m. I would just sit and read and when it was done I just turned on the TV and I just watched for a while <laughs> you know it was <laughs> right. it was the most glorious Gilligan's Island I'd ever seen yeah, or whatever came yeah. on but 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 you know seeing the wide range of what's being published and uh, it was kind of thrilling you know and it and you know, it's made me, I think, more aware of a lot of smaller presses than maybe I would have, um, uh, of a lot of, you know, younger writers and some mid-career writers whose work I didn't know before. Uh, and, you know, I, I almost wish um, they would ask me again in a few years because the crosscut will be different in that year. There'll be new, um, you know, I only got to see the people who had a novel out in 2008. And then the rest of the time you rely on reviews and recommendations, maybe friends books, you know, but it's so hard to keep track of everything. So, you know, something that you said just a, a few seconds ago about the division between very good books and great books. Yeah. Like doing the judging and having that kind of um, concentrated period of reading, you know, your contemporaries um, and sort of uh, coming to understand the quality, you know, from yeah. book to book. Did you get a sense of what distinguishes a great book from a very good book? Ah, it's really interesting you phrase it that way because that became in my mind, a point of contention, not with the panel, but with it, with myself. Um, uh, I had been a finalist a couple of years earlier, sort of plucked out of nowhere. And so I took that responsibility incredibly uh, seriously and I wanted to reward the best books. And every few years, people will question the national book award panel. Well, they're trying to send this message. They, you know, they picked five writers who are women. They were trying to say that, you know, publishing is sexist and i i really doubt it the five panel the four panelists who worked with me all we ever talked about was what was the best book and then and then that makes you um confront that question what makes a great book um the if i if there's one drawback to a system like that it's that really good books that aren't um you know that maybe don't aren't um uh, as formally inventive or as um, 
uh, or don't tackle huge themes sometimes lose out because you are thinking of that word greatness. So you're looking for something that maybe is groundbreaking um, and you're looking for something that maybe tackles huge themes. Peter Matheson's um, Shadow Country was the winner the year that I was a judge it's an incredible book and it tackles those huge themes and it's and it's inventive in the way it's written um but looking back on the process as judges the one thing i think you have to watch out for is that just uh you know a a marvelous book that's well crafted and that does all the things we expect of fiction that it doesn't maybe get nudged out because it it doesn't feel grand enough in scope you can get caught up in the idea of this being a historic thing you're doing it's um, like the oscars well and I even mean. and even more than the oscars um because it's you know it's literature and we expect it to have a uh, you know, a quality that, um, well, this has never been done before, or this tells us about America with a capital A. Um, and, and some great novels do that, but some great novels, um, are about, you know, two boys, uh, running away from home, you know, and they're, and they, so I think some smaller books maybe were at a bit of the disadvantage when I look back in hindsight, the, I thought the list we came up with was great, had some wonderful writers on it, Marilyn Robinson, Alexander Heyman. Um, you know, it was, it, it uh, I, I was proud of the list we came up with and I was really, um, impressed with all the judges and, and how seriously we took our job. Um, but it was, it really, it really caused me to confront, you know, what I think a great book is, uh, you know, and, uh, and maybe, um, we undersold entertainment sometimes, you know, or, or like, you know, what I find myself thinking of too is, uh, emotion. Sure. Right. Like, do, right. do I, you know, do I get lost and it doesn't move me right. in an authentic way? Like, right. you know, however it gets that done, whether it right. takes like, you know, uh, formal, uh, risks right. or, right. you know, is right. really inventive structurally or whether or not it's a very simple story about two boys who right. run away. Like, well, and, and that can be the difficulty when you're talking to four other people, you can sort of lapse into a sort of academic discussion of literature. Um, and you miss that, which, what should be the elemental question was I moved by this? Yeah. How did it make me feel? Uh, I think we avoided that. I mean, I think for the most part, we tried to choose books that, um, did move us in that way, but, but it is, um, you know, if, if, uh, and I've judged a couple of other contests, um, one before and one after. And, and I think I, you know, you, I think I'll make that small adjustment again next time and make sure I don't overlook books that, um, that are moving, but maybe lack that larger, grander scheme. Yeah. Well, and I find too, sometimes that simplicity or, uh, even brevity. Yeah. I, I find myself increasingly, imp- I'm always impressed with like, right. Uh, a, a short muscular yes, right. work of fiction, you right, know, that right. like feels, yeah. Um, like it's got uh, all this weight to it. Right. Like, I feel yeah. like, I don't know, like as a writer, I just find I'm so admiring of that. Yeah. Know? I mean, a book like Jesus, the son pops into your mind, you know, where, um, and a lot of times what isn't on the page is, uh, you know, is there's a, a friend of mine named Sam Ligon, a writer who, who calls it negative space. You know, there's yeah. a negative space in a book like that where the brevity works against some other thing that's going on. Um, and, and I think it's the reason I like, you know, the crime fiction that I like tends to have that spare quality, that hardness, you know, which can be really be a thrilling read. Yeah. Well, and so let's talk a little bit about, 
uh, literary influences. Okay. You know, what got you started, first of all? Can you, can you point to writers from your youth that really set you on your course? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a very blue-collar family, and um, no one in my, you know, there were, weren't very many books in my house. No one in my family had gone to college. Um, uh, my dad worked at an aluminum plant. My grandfather's um, one was a construction worker who was killed when a crane fell on him, and the other worked on a cattle ranch and died stretching fence, you know. So, um, what do you I, mean he died stretching he fence? He had a heart attack. He was oh, okay. stretching fence on the ranch. And um, so, uh, I, I, I didn't really come by reading naturally. I just, I always loved it. I don't, I think I was kind of a smallish kid. Um, I got a stick in my eye when I was five, and so I spent. Um, those, some formative years with an eye patch on, um, lying what, in hospital beds. What happened there? We were playing catch with a stick, and it went in my eye, and I had to have surgeries from the time I was five until I was eight. Um, Can you so, see out of it? Or? No, no, I have no vision in my left eye. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that um, that was the time. So I just got a lot of books and read all the time. And I loved story stories. I loved Treasure Island and anything with explorers. I loved, you know, um, I love polar exploration. That seemed to me like the greatest story ever. Uh, and, I, and I have one of those um, origin stories like superheroes, you know, that might be apocryphal. But I remember uh, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer maybe at 11 or 12, and I would tell people I was going to be a writer. And I didn't know what kind of writer. And sometimes I told them I would be an NBA point guard too. So it wasn't my only dream, but <laughs> that's I, usually the split. It's yeah, one or right. the other. Right? Yeah. And you know, it was a toss up. I, I still haven't chosen for sure. But I'm <laughs> leaning toward writer. Um, cause there are so many one eyed NBA point guards, um, <laughs> but I was at, uh, I was in my middle school library, my junior high library. And I went to where my novels would eventually be stacked. Um, and right before w, you mean it alphabetically, yeah, right before W in my library was Vonnegut. And so the first book of his, I read was breakfast of champions. And he was really my first literary influence. Me that, too. Was he? It's yeah. so weird. How many yeah. young men, yeah. I, yeah. male writers in particular, not that, well, fem- not that women can't like him too, right. but like, but I'll tell you why. I think the key to that is in breakfast of champions where on page six or whatever it is, he stops and says, I'll also draw pictures. Here's my drawing of an asshole. And he draws an asterisk. And right. for any, you know, um, 11, 12, 13, 14 year old boy, the first thing you think is you can do that. Right. And, uh, for me, it was as if literature all of a sudden was three dimensional. It wasn't just telling stories. And the fact in that book, he goes in his own novel at the end, um, to set his characters free, uh, and does it, you know, in a way that is so inventive. It just seemed like this incredibly inventive thing. So Vonnegut became the first writer. And then, you know, there've been many writers since then who've made it who popped writing into some other dimension I didn't expect. Gabriel Garcia Marquez and 100 Years of Solitude, um, you know, blew up writing for me. Um, Joan Didion, um, talk about a clean line, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I wrote nonfiction. I was a journalist by training. Uh, and I thought, you know, that she was um, – she was expressing a kind of anxiety beneath the surface of everything she wrote that just blew me away. Later, Don DeLillo, you know, um, was... Also has some anxiety there. Also a little bit of anxiety. <laughs> right. Hmm, I never... Now you're going to tell me writers have neurosis, too. <laughs> what the hell? Uh, so, yeah, I, um, those were some of the early ones. And, and then you go through your Hemingway, and then, no, you think it's Fitzgerald. No, then you're sure it's Faulkner. Right. You know, and, but you secretly sort of like Steinbeck, but you can't tell anybody that. And then <laughs> you start reading Carver and, you know, and you thumb your way. I had a period where um, I thought the metafictionists, Bartholomew and Barth and 
gas and um, uh, Coover. I loved Coover. Um, and uh, Milhauser, who I still think is just genius. Um, those were the guys. Then a more cl- a more straightforward narrative catches you. Uh, William Kennedy and Richard Russo, those are the guys writing. You know, it's you're constantly making these tiny adjustments based on something that blows up what you thought of literature. David Mitchell did that to me with Cloud Atlas a few years ago. Edward P. Jones with The Known World. Um, Mary Gateskill with the just seething power in these short stories. You know, I'm constantly, um, you know, thinking, no, no, you know, and uh, this is what I should do. And it's, and it adjusts the way I work. And, um, and then because I was mostly self-educated, I would go back and read the Russians over a summer and Anna Karenina would just, you know, um, uh, you know, and, and the movement at the end of that book where we're, we're in her character and all of a sudden we're above her watching her step onto the train tracks, um, that the audacity of that written when it was Newt Hampson's hunger, um, you know, that, that there are. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I am in a men's Shakespeare group where, um, uh, myself and three other middle-aged, uh, late middle-aged men meet in bars and we talk about Shakespeare plays and it's thrilling to go back and read that stuff. Cause I, I, I you know, I like to joke that my Those house, nights must get crazy. You know, they, they, <laughs> we, we were, uh, we were at this great bar. We were drinking, we were talking and the, the waitress came in and said, are you got, is this a Bible study group? Cause we all have these great big, you know, Shakespeare omnibuses open. We're like, no, we're reading the bard, you know? And she just gave us a look like, you know, boy, when nerds get old, But, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I, am still, I still find myself just thrilled and, um, uh, and renovated as a writer. Every time I read some writer, I haven't, um, old and new. Do you go, do you go through a lot of, I mean, do you have a hard time finding books that move you in that way? Do you find yourself picking up books, reading a chunk and then being like, no, this isn't it. Yeah. I, I put books down more than I used to. Um, and I, you know, and I think, uh, you know, when you've read, for instance, a great story can captivate me sometimes, and there'll be times when that's what I want. But often, uh, as a writer, you start doing the predictive thing where you think, oh, they're going to get together now, and oh, the boyfriend's uh, going to be abusive, or, um, you know, and, and you know, and so as a writer, sometimes you can, you can be less, uh, you can enjoy the sort of craft of a novel less than... Um, than maybe if you were just a straight consumer, you know? And so, yeah, I, I, you know, and I, I don't mind putting a novel down and I can still admire the writing in a novel. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not, a, a, I'm not at the point where I need to know what happens to all the people in a novel. Um, and so to be propelled all the way through a book is, uh, is something that I'm always looking for, but doesn't always happen. Yeah. Well, and then, um, let's talk about, um, you know, obviously you were reading a lot as a, as a young man and you knew that you wanted to write. I'm assuming you were starting to write, uh, in your school days. And then, um, you know, where, where did it, I guess, take you? I think you went to college. Well, um, you should really make quote marks when you call it college, um, <laughs> uh, which no one will be able to see except you and I. So, uh, uh, I went, I, um, yeah, I always wanted to be a writer. I was kind of a screw off as a kid and um, went to Eastern Washington University, which was very close to my house, and then uh, proceeded to get my girlfriend pregnant and become a father at 19. So I, I, I always wanted to write fiction. And um, I mean, my dream, honestly, was to get a van um, 
drive down to LA and be a poet and grow facial hair, you know, and that that's about as far as it went. And, um, but when you're a dad at 19, I had to figure out how to support my kids. So newspapers became this incredible route for me. And it sort of met my blue collar background to, to go to a place where, you know, and I started as a sports reporter and then worked my way into a, uh, um, crime reporter and then an investigative reporter and was a Pulitzer prize finalist for my coverage of Ruby Ridge. And, uh, it was an amazing training ground. And, uh, uh there are a lot of writers who's, you know, who were journalists by training that I really find myself uh, identifying with their work. I think, um, I think it can make an, a novelist, especially a little more outward looking at the world, maybe a little less internal, um, a little more reliant on research and on the machinery of how the world works. Cause that's what you do every day. And not to mention a little bit more disciplined a lot of the time. Yeah. And I, and I don't even think of it as discipline. I mean, it's, um, what I think of when I work in newspapers, I feel like I was given a job in some, um, dive bar playing piano with a little cup and they would come in every day and make requests. So I didn't get to pick what I played, but my chops, um, my, I had no fear of publication. Uh, and you know, and I, and I still approach writing with a real blue collar ethic. As I said, my dad worked in an aluminum factory, you know, and he didn't get aluminum block. He just went to work, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and so I, um, and I switch around. If I get stuck on something, I don't leave the desk. I pull something else up. I'll set something aside. It's how a novel like Beautiful Ruins could take 15 years to write because I set it aside and work on other things. And so, um, yeah, that that was sort of my training was journalism. And I kept writing short stories during that time, and I would mail them off to journals. I didn't, I didn't have an MFA. I didn't know any editors. I was just coming in over the transom and I used to call them Manila boomerangs cause I would send them off. And then six weeks later they'd come flying back to me <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, and really had no luck selling short stories. And then after, uh, I was able to sell, I, I published maybe one or two, mostly in friends journals that either no longer exist or never existed. And, uh, and then my first book, uh, the nonfiction book, um, every knee shall bow, which was about Ruby Ridge was published and ended up doing very well. It was made into a mini series. Um, and then, you know, I did some ghostwriting for a while to pay the bills, um, wrote, worked on a couple of, uh, script ideas down here while I really taught myself how to write a novel. And, um, so it was another, after my nonfiction book, it was another seven years before my first novel came out. Were you still doing the newspaper work? No, no. I was supporting myself by, um, ghostwriting. You know, I did, I worked on a, wrote a spec script and got paid a little bit for that. Um, would write book reviews. Um, I've taught off and on, you know, um, I've never, again, I think, I think it's a kind of, um, you know, it turns out to be a great thing to have this sort of blue collar ethic and you don't think of it growing up. I felt as if I was at a disadvantage because I didn't know any writers. I didn't know, um, you know, I, I wasn't going to be able to get my MFA. Uh, but so all I did was read and write, you know, and I, I would write freelance stories. I would write essays. I would write anything all the time to just keep going and then sold my first novel, sold another one, um, one in Edgar. And, um, so was sort of branded as a mystery writer and then, um, was able to kind of break out of that and, uh, and find myself as, you know, a literary novelist, I guess, although I sort of, um, you know, I'll push away from that to, uh, just because I think, you know, I understand why bookstores have to do it, but I don't feel like writers have to. No, I mean, that, that is a bit unusual though, that kind of versatility. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that it's, yeah, I think it's a, tr a path that, um, you know, it, 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 
uh, I, I used to sort of marvel at the way literary writers were able to write crime fiction and everyone would say, oh, yeah, look at them. They're they're stretching and writing a literary thriller. But when, you know, I, I've yet to see Dean Koontz write a story in The New Yorker about, a you know, a couple going through therapy and the wife <laughs> admitting that she wants to be a lesbian or something, you know. Right. The, um, I'd love to see that collection. That would, I, would, yeah. I would buy that and collection. In fact, when McSweeney's published there, one of those astounding tales, you know, with literary writers writing genre fiction, I thought they should do a companion one where they had um, genre writers try to write, you know, the, the, the most turgid New Yorker story they could imagine, you know, <laughs> see what that fiction looked like. Yeah, that would be interesting. It'd be great. Yeah. So, uh, the blue collar work ethic. Yeah. Like, okay. So you're, uh, let's talk about it specifically with regard to your creative work, your literary work. Uh, you know, how do you do it? What's your schedule? Well, I write every day, seven days a week. Um, I wake up at five, which I think is the rancher in me. I haven't set an alarm in years, but every morning I wake up, you know, when the sun rises and, um, my, I have this secret that, um, really I think is the reason is the total secret to the way I work, which is my wife makes these bars. They're like giant chocolate chip walnut cookie things. And I defro- she freezes them and I defrost one every night. And I make a great big latte and I head out to my office and I'm at the desk usually by 5.15 or 5.30 um, with my big cookie and my latte and I just start working. And that's it. And that's it. I do it. I took Christmas off last year, you know, but we go on vacation and I I kind of love to write, you know, and uh, I made a deal with myself that if I was writing something that I was stuck on, I would set it aside until I was no longer stuck. And and I'm I often write on deadline. There are things I have to finish. I have to do rewrites, you know, for editors and things. But for the most part, um, I try to write the next thing I want to read, and um, you know, and. And I think the biggest proof of that is, like I said, a novel like Beautiful Ruins, which I started in 1997, hit a wall, set it down, wrote another novel, picked it up, hit a wall, set it down. So set it Uh, down. You're talking setting it down for a while. Yeah, yeah, for years. Yeah, I I finished... Um, and, and, you know, and I, I started my novel, The Financial Lives of the Poets, is full of um, mediocre to bad poetry, um, only a couple of which are mine. But I started writing poetry as a way to kind of cleanse the palate when I was stuck on fiction. The key, the key to me is not to get up from the desk. Um, and if I get up from the desk and I break out of that fictional world, my office is above our garage. I don't have the Internet there. I don't I either turn off my cell phone or put it in a bag and, ha- and um, have it on silent so I can't hear it. And I just try to concentrate on what I'm working on. I usually start at the beginning of what I've written, maybe the day before, sometimes at the beginning of a chapter, um, so that I get the voice in my head. I read everything aloud as I rewrite it, so it has a kind of spoken quality. Um, and I just try to you know use what I've written the day before as a ramp to lift me off into what I write that next day. I don't, I'm not a huge outliner, but I keep um, uh, writing journal at all times in which I keep track thematically and structurally of what it is I'm doing. I make little character notes, try to make corrections, things pop into my head, bits of description. Um, and, you know, and it's, um, again, you know, as someone who's, who's, um, you know, parents had to really work for a living. Um, I don't, I find it kind of enjoyable what I do, you know, I just get to go imagine things and write them. And so, you know, I try not to take it for granted. I try to work really hard at it. And, um, and with a place with a kind of humility that 
intersects with confidence, you know, and, um, uh, and that I think, you know, mentally or intellectually is kind of the key for a writer is to be humble enough to be able to do it, you know, but confident enough to think that you're going to end up with something worthwhile. Where do you get the confidence from? You know, I remember, I don't know where it comes from. I, I had a kind of freeing confidence that came from the fact that I'd never thought anyone was going to ever read this stuff. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, I'll be as experimental as I want. I always thought I could write. I always, when I was at the newspaper, you know, editors would say, I can't find a place to cut this because it's so seamless. And it's a kind of... Um, you know, it's what I pride myself on. I know how obsessively I go over things. Oh, if I'm stuck on a section that doesn't work, I can't go forward. It's like a rat in, in the hair and I can't get past that rat. So I, I know when it sounds right to my ear. Um, and, and, you know, and I also know how much I have to learn uh, always. You know, I'm always, I think I'm a better novelist every time I, I, I think each of my books in, for the most part is better than the last. You know, I mm. think I tend to think the last sentence I wrote is the best thing, not only that I've ever written it, but that has ever been written in the English language. So, <laughs> and I, and I, you know, I, I will include the Russians as well. So, <laughs> no, um, I, I, so yeah, I, uh, you know, I think that confidence, I think every writer has some level of that confidence and some of it comes from external validation, certainly. And the, and the reviews and, you know, um, you know, some awards and things, all that, I mean, none of that hurts, but, uh, but I think I had some measure of it, um, just based on the sound I was going for in writing and my, uh, my ability to hit it sometimes, you know, I remember when stories would be rejected. I remember my first handwritten rejection, which came from the Trestle Creek review for a short story I'd written about these young men in a car accident. And this woman wrote back, um, clearly you write pretty well. Um, but this story, you know, doesn't work. Da, 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 da. And then the last line was as literature, I think not. Um, and I still remember thinking I write pretty well, you know, so <laughs> sometimes, you know, I think you take from rejection, even those little bits. Um, I, I, I don't know if you remember the old Tony Curtis movie about Houdini. Um, Houdini is there's one of his famous tricks where he's dropped in the Chicago River and in, in a he's locked in a safe with handcuffs and a and a, a straight jacket on put in a safe and dropped into the frozen Chicago River through a hole in the ice and he has this trick down he's got the key in his mouth so he takes the handcuffs off he slips out of the um, out of the uh, straight jacket he works his way out of the safe and he swims to the top of the river but what he didn't count on was the safe drifting all the way downstream he doesn't know where the hole is. Uh, and to me, that felt like such an apt metaphor for publishing. You get to that place where you feel like your work is good enough, but, and you're right at the surface, but there's this hard ice right above you. And Houdini does what we all have to do. Um, he slurps little bits of air trapped air pockets trapped under the ice until he finds his way to the hole. And those rejections with a nice note in them or some reader friend telling me, I like this part of the story. There were these little bubbles of air that kept you going and kept your confidence going until you found the hole in the ice, which is publication, you know, and what you don't realize as a writer is they just keep dropping you in that damn frozen river over and over, you know, and <laughs> right. your second book is even, the river's even deeper and your third book they you know they uh they lock your hands and legs together you know each time you're gonna have to find your way up um, but i yeah i think little bits of external validation and then i always felt like a writer 
Well, and I, I felt think, like that's what I was called to do. Well, that and then just the I think the 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 discipline, doing the work yeah. day in and day out, will give you. Right. I mean, if you're doing it, yeah. Over time, you you know you have to get better. And I think journalism is great for that too. You know, you you publish, you write something, you publish it, you get that validation. There were there were ways in which I had to leave the journalist behind to become a novelist. But I do think I think you're right. Discipline and writing every day, whatever kind of writing it is, um, I think can bring you that. And I think MFA programs can provide a similar kind of thing. Uh, I, I like the sort of real world. Um, uh, you know, craftsman style of writing that newspapers um, taught. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too is you're talking about your workspace and you're talking about uh, not having internet right. and turning off your phone or hiding your phone right, or whatever right. it is. Like I had this, uh, I think this was an epiphany, or at least I had a thought. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like an epiphany to me. Yeah, no, but I just had a thought the other day where, you know, I think sometimes when, when uh, you sit down to write, uh, you can sometimes take on this burden of thinking that you have to be uh, extremely intelligent. Right. Right. But I, I think that what might be like when you think about like a guy like Don DeLillo, who clearly right. has a great mind and people often point to as like a brilliant guy sure. in addition to being a brilliant writer. Right, right. But I, I, th I think maybe, you know, it is partially brain power, but it's also just, you know, the ability to consistently focus. Right. And when you read a, a, a book... Uh, or you look at a work of art and it really resonates, I tend to think that's a reflection of the artist's uh, concentrated attention, their powers yeah. of concentration. And in this world, it's harder and harder to concentrate. Do you I see know, I, I couldn't agree more. And I often think my books are smarter than I am, that I've been able to infuse them with a level of detail and obsessive concentration that I lack. You know, And it, and it could be the, the crazy thing about going out on a book tour like this is um, – I want to say, you know, um, I'm glad you want to talk to me, but the really good stuff's in there. You know, yeah. I left it all in there. Yeah. I'm sorry. I got, you know, uh, I got nothing. Right. I got, I'm, I got red Cincinnati red scores. That's right. all, you know, I can, I can tell you Davy Concepcion's batting average in 1977, but I have no idea how that book came about. So yeah, I do think, and I, and I think, you know, with that fractured um, culture that we live in, and it's the reason I've, you know, I've, I've made the decision not to, um, you know, not to have the internet on my work computer is so that I, I can keep that focus. Cause I, I think fiction rising writing because fiction reading is immersive. You're, you are immersed in that world and writing is even more so. And, and that's the thrilling part about it. We, you know, every writer who's been away from it from a, for a while and then goes back to it, I'm sure you've experienced this year, you think, God, that was great. Why don't I do that all the time? Right. Or, you, or you have like just a little time off and you go back uh, fresh and right. You have, I usually have a really good day that day. Yeah, right. You right, know? Yeah. And yeah. so, I, you know, the, the fact that we're constantly, you know, talk about epiphanies that we have and that there's a, there's a character in Beautiful Ruins whose girlfriend tells him, you're, a, you're an epiphany addict, you know? And um, <laughs> I think I can be in a bit of an epiphany addict. And my writing journal is so great for that because I'll, I'll remark, you know, what a great writing day I had. And, um, of course, why don't I always do this or that? Or, you know, I should always start with that, you know, as if, um, you know, there is no path to it. You just have to fumble your way there. Now, did you, does, is it ever really onerous for you? It sounds like you have a lot, like you genuinely enjoy and have fun doing it. But I mean, are there ever days where you're just like, F this? There oh, yeah. You know, the hardest, I th in some ways, the book I'm the most proud of uh, is The Zero, which um, was the most difficult thing I've ever written and is 
structurally challenging, is dark, um, and moves toward a sort of dissolution that um, some readers find really frustrating. You know, they want their questions to be answered in fiction. So if you're writing something that sort of, um, you know, uh, posits that that dissolution is at the end of everything, um, that could be a tough read for people. And it was a really tough thing to write. It was hard work. It, it has a structure. The main character, Brian Remy, is suffering from gaps, um, moments in which he seems to lose himself and find himself on the other side of the gap. He'll reach out for a glass of whiskey and his hand will close on a doorknob instead. And he'll turn the, turn the doorknob and there's a naked woman in the next room and he doesn't know how he got there. And he has to navigate an entire life with these gaps, with these moments and um, structuring that novel was such hard work and it's a it's set uh, right after the terrorist attacks of 2001 so it was about grief and about um, uh, and, and it's it was such a dark difficult book to write that when I finished it I had to tell myself it was okay to have fun writing again yeah, I mean, do you ever do you ever wonder, like, when you're writing something like that, where you go, Jesus, where is this coming from? Well, I knew where it was coming from. I had done, I had been at Ground Zero five days after the attacks, um, doing a ghostwriting job. Um, my, it was a, it was a sort of glorified editing job. My publisher had signed the police commissioner of New York, Bernard Carrick, who's now in federal prison, to a. Um, book contract and I had helped form this thing he'd written into a book and I'd done it in part uh, part for the money but also I was writing a novel Citizen Vince that had um, New York cops as characters and I wanted some access to New York cops and it was amazing access um, so I happened to find myself at Ground Zero and was um, you know just torn apart by what I saw but also by the way in which it was politicized and the way in which we clung to a kind of false reality of what had happened that led us, I think, into the, to the Iraq war. I think we clung to this false idea of what had happened. We tried to claim victory in this horrible thing that had happened. I think we and, panicked. As oh, a, we totally it panicked. It was like and national panic. It was, it was a like, national panic. And, and then we fought a war based on nothing but vengeance. We pretended it was other things. I, I, I felt as if the country had gone crazy. Me too. And everyone, I, I think a lot of people felt like that. Sure. And, and so I, uh, this wasn't a book that I decided to write. This was I was haunted by all the things I'd seen there, but also by what it meant for us as a country. And so that's what the book is about. It's about our our sort of national break from reality after terrorism. And Brian Remy's um, the separation of his cause from his effect is what I sort of felt like. Um, I, I remember when I started the book, I got home from New York in late October of 2001 after having been in, in the city um, and right at ground zero during most of that time. And I was driving down a street in Spokane, Washington, and I saw a sign that said, God bless America, new furniture arriving every day. And um, <laughs> I pulled over and I just burst into tears. And it just I don't seemed, mean to laugh, but it's, just, I know, it's an absurd sign. It's so absurd. And, and there was this kind of consumer nationalism that we mock now you know we must drink budweiser or the terrorists have won well but, no but it was like the president was i remember george bush was saying go shop right he did he said uh, and you know rudy giuliani the day i arrived in new york five days after when they were still still had hope of pulling bodies from the ground a reporter said what can americans do to help and he said you can go to new york you can spend your money you can show the terrorists that they can't win as if those two things were the same uh, and then he said this thing i'll never forget it might be a good time to get producers tickets and i remember thinking no it's a really bad time to get producers <laughs> tickets you yeah, know right and and now it seems obvious in hindsight but at the time 
um, it was sort of the national mood, you know, that the terrorists have attacked our economy, our way of life. No, they didn't. They they blew up. They ran airplanes into buildings and brought the buildings down. It was an it was an act of sheer terrorism. You know, the kind of thing that Don DeLillo would write about earlier. You know, and um, and so to watch that sort of that break from reality, and you know, it, it's what fueled the novel, and um, and it was. As I said, to this day, it feels to me like the most significant book I've written in a lot of ways. Um, but afterward, I I felt like I had to write something toward lightness, you know, toward sunlight, uh, and that and beautiful ruins and the financial lives of the poets, um, you know, beautiful ruins because it was an attempt to try to write about something that I normally would feel sort of sentimental about, you know, is it possible to have a moment with a person that's so profound that almost 50 years later, you're still thinking about that person, which seems that sort of, you know, sheer romanticism would terrify me as a writer and then financialize the poets because it was just fun and funny. I just had a guy go in a convenience store and then an hour later, he was getting stoned for the first time in years <laughs> and then his life was running off the rails, you know. So both of those books were kind of a reaction to, um, you know, to to the sort of heaviness with which that book, the, uh, the zero is written. So what you're saying is that your next book's going to be dark. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I, uh, going back into the abyss. I will. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I, thankfully I, I don't seem entirely in control of what the next book is. So, uh, which is a kind of nice way to pretend as if it's not my problem. So, so, but can you, okay. Because your books like vary so wildly, you know, not only in terms of, uh, form and content, but in terms of genre, you know, yeah. you've, you've jumped around and done different things. Uh, a lot of times when you read an author, like even a, you know, a, a author in the canon, sure. you read all their books and you can really see, you know, distinct yeah. patterns in their storytelling right. and the contents of what they're writing. Like, can you look at your books, um, as disparate as they might seem on the surface and see, the through line? Oh, I can. I mean, I think they're all about, um, I think every one of my books is about a kind of wistful, um, longing for connection, you know? And I think they're, I think I'm, you know, I tend toward being a comic writer, um, only in that I see the world that way. I see, um, the, uh, popping of vanities as the thing that a writer is that I'm drawn to as a writer. Uh, I also tend to be pretty topical, I think, because of my journalism background. So the zero is about our reaction to terrorism. Um, you know, the, um, financial lives of the poets is about the, you know, the financial crisis we went through, uh, beautiful ruins is about the entertainment industry and the way we tell stories. And I think I'm drawn, you know, uh, to those big thematic ideas. So yeah, I can definitely see a through line. I have this book of short stories that comes out in March. It's called We Live in Water, and it's about eight years of short stories um, that I've culled into a greatest hits album. You know, um, <laughs> it's going to be like uh, Kansas's greatest hits. There's <laughs> dust in the wind, and then you'll go to that other one, and then you'll throw it away. Right. Um, uh, but it was interesting to go back and see throughout the different forms um, over those years the through line. You know, so many of the stories were about fathers and sons. Um, so many of them were about um, poverty, you know, which is um, I sort of grew up with and still live in a place that is poorer than most. Um, and, you know, in confronting that, those sorts of things, um, you know, still, I still think that there's a, that a novelist has a, a social responsibility, you know, that is to um, write about those things that are important in the time that you're there. 
And so for me now, I'm really drawn to the idea of generational poverty. Um, and that that's something I'm writing about in short stories. I have a story, I've had three stories in McSweeney's in the last couple of years, last year and a half, all of which deal with some measure of that. Um, and that seems to be something that I'm drawn to in a larger way. And I think it'll be the next thing I write. So what do you mean? Can you drill down a little bit deeper when you say generational poverty? It's, I mean, we obviously know what that means, but yeah, I, I, I expand think, a little bit. I think with the end of communism, we lost a very important uh, counterpoint to capitalism, which was the idea that there might be some political system or some other system that takes care of the least of us. And now we're really just talking about different brands of capitalism, which is a little impossible to do because um, it's a little like, you know, talking about different kinds of height, you know, the tallest height is going to be the, the best height, you know, um, and, and so the biggest, the brashest. And so, you know, people get run over in that kind of economic system. Um, I had a piece in McSweeney's called Statistical Abstract for My Hometown of Spokane, Washington, that was not really a statistical abstract, but was about growing up in this place that I sort of um, loathed because of its poverty, because of its, um, it wasn't sophisticated, it wasn't educated. And because those things tend to go together, it creates these loops of poverty that you just can never escape. And I, ha I came to terms with living in Spokane, Washington, the city I live in that is, um, you know, that is poor and white and uneducated and unsophisticated when I realized those those words actually described me as well. Um, and to hate the place I was from was a kind of self-loathing. And um, so, yeah, I want to, you know, my, as I said, my family um, comes from pretty modest roots. <clears throat> and so I think what I'm trying to do is find, um, you know, find some way in to, you know, to write about the, the incredible economic inequity that we have in this country and to do it in a fictional way that in which the characters will, you know, will drive whatever happens. And, and those things are tied up in race. They're tied up in geography. They're tied up in a lot of different things. So luck. luck yeah, <laughs> I mean, certainly luck. Um, and, and, but it seems to me like those, like we've decided, um, as an, as a nation that we want those ruts to be even deeper. Yeah. We want it to be harder to get out of poverty. We want the, we want um, the people who have money to be able to keep it and hand it down generation after generation. Uh, and, and, and we, you know, we, we want, we don't care if, uh, if uh, living on minimum wage means, uh, you know, living in deep, deep poverty. And so um, it feels like the kind of thing that a novelist should write about. Well, no, I mean, no, it brings to mind like another one of these like thoughts that's been recurring with me lately is that like trying to distill um, not just arguments related to generational poverty, but trying right. to distill so many different aspects of um, our national conversation, sure. for lack of a better way of putting it. And like one of the things that I, I think I've come to is that you can distill so many of these uh, debates down to. Uh, we're all in this together <laughs> and, or it's every right. man for himself. Right. Right. And it's trying to reconcile. I mean, that seems to be like the, the, the central, um, conflict at the heart right. of so many things in this country. And I think in the, in, in life in general, it's right. like people tend to see things more to one side than the other. There are right. some of us who believe we're all in this th together. There are some of us who believe it's every man for himself. And, and I, and, and economically, certainly every man for itself uh, one, you know, right around the time, um, 
Soviet communism turned out to be tyranny, you know, um, there, there, there wasn't ever an alternative. Um, you know, the, the socialist, uh, Governments of Europe are are you know, are being threatened, you know, and and so I do, you know, yeah, I, I think that is Camus called it the wager of your generation to find that thing that um, that needs to be written about, and uh, again, not to be too heavy-handed or um, or uh, self-important, but I think as a journalist, that's what I'm drawn to are those, and and I'm kind of not shy about approaching novels thematically and and trying to work my way into them through characters that hopefully um, become real in some way so that's not dissimilar from uh, to Vonnegut yeah I think, I think he worked right. I think he worked yeah. like with big ideas right. almost first right yeah and then went into them somehow yeah, yeah. yeah. and it, it is amazing how I find myself coming back to him as not maybe a model of the kind of writing I want to do because I turned out to be a very different writer although we both I think use humor and try to draw people in but um but his that idea of what a writer should be that you know his humanist qualities and you know that just be nice to one another damn it you know, yeah. that uh, that sort of exhortation um, you know it's, it seems like it's not a bad thing for a writer to have something like that in the back of his mind as well, well. I think he conceived him I mean I want to say I remember reading an essay where he conceived it as being like a change agent yeah you know right. like the canary in the coal mine I sure. think was maybe a right. metaphor that he used yeah, and right. that makes some sense to me yeah yeah have you read the uh, biography the Charles Shields biography yeah and I actually had Charles on the show oh, did you yeah. yeah so that was a fun yeah. episode because I've of yeah. course I'm like I'm, I'm from Indiana so oh, like, sure I grew up right down the road yeah. from where Vonnegut went yeah. to high school and you know yeah. he was right down the, I mean right down yeah. the street so. I'm in there briefly the um because I stalked him and uh and had this <laughs> who didn't yeah well I actually stalked him I was when I was a newspaper reporter and I thought my fictional dream was over i um i had this brilliant idea that when authors came to town i would get press credentials and cover them but i was a sports reporter so i would get phony press credentials uh, because my newspaper would send someone else so i would say i was writing for this magazine or that magazine and i went to hear ken kesey speak that way and they would have little press conferences beforehand and i would go with reporters and ask you know what advice would you give to a young writer and i did that with tom wolf when he came to town and then vonnegut came to town when i was 20 and I got to go hear him at Gonzaga University, and um, I and I wrote. I got my press credential, and I went to interview him. And he showed up. He had, he was driven. I'll never forget by the head of the ROTC in a Plymouth Fury. And I was following him um, on the freeway. They had just come in from the airport, and I could see Vonnegut leaning out the window, smoking. And it was <laughs> just course. thrilling. And yeah, right. So we get to the place where the press conference is going to be with all the other young report with all the other reporters, and there's no one there but Vonnegut and me. Um, and so we sit down in this little room across from each other, and I'm just. I'm so nervous. I'm asking him all these questions. And here's the guy, you know, since I was 12, this is the kind of writer I've wanted to be. And I, you know, ask him my first question. And he says, can I ask you a question? How old are you? And I said, well, I'm 20. And he said, and you're writing for Esquire? Because uh, <laughs> I had told him, the, you know, that, that I was going to write a piece for Esquire. I said, well, they haven't exactly accepted the piece. And uh, he was very nice. He answered my questions for a while. And then he excused himself to go rest. And then after his presentation that night, he did his usual Vonnegut thing where he did his shape of, of stories and told, it was great. It was wonderful. Afterward, he called me up and he said, did you get everything you needed? And I said, I did. Thank you. And he said, well, uh, I look forward to reading it. Wow. And uh, so I, I wrote that piece years later and a, an in, indie newspaper published it and his publicist saw it. And, um, 
he sent me out of the blue um, a copy of the Sirens of Titan, a leather-bound copy of the Sirens of Titan. Uh, and he wrote on the inside, I'd published a couple books by then, and he wrote on the inside, to my fellow novelist, Jess Walter, this is the one book of mine that wrote itself. All the others refused your friend, Kurt Vonnegut. Oh. Um, so I had just finished my novel, Citizen Vince, so I sent it off to him, and I got a postcard back about a month later. said, read Citizen Vince uh, right away, loved it. So glad you're being noticed, your friend, Kurt Vonnegut. Oh. Uh, and then, Do you have this stuff framed? Oh, yeah. I still have all that stuff. I have the postcards inside the leather-bound edition of Sirens of Titan. And then I sent – I just finished the Zero, and I sent it to him. And he wrote back a postcard. I could tell he hadn't read it yet, but he said, uh, you know, so glad to get the Zero. Thank you. Um, and the the epigraph to the Zero is by Celine. And he wrote at the bottom – like One of my favorites. I mean, oh, he, he wrote oh, my favorite Celine. novel. Oh, really? Yeah, Which one? Journey, I think. Journey is great. A, I like yeah. it better than Death on the Installment Plan. Right. Yeah. Those two. I mean, the other ones They're are a little nice. bit harder for me to access, yeah. but Journey, for whatever oh. reason, was – yeah. It was one of those books. The way I always describe it is that it has everything in it. It does. And it's, yeah. it's missing nothing. But it, and it, but it's and there's something about those ellipses and about the um, you know the kind of um, leaking. Um, there's this humanity that's at the center of it, but this this sort of loathing of humanity that keeps leaking from it. That is so modern. That feels to me like everything that we fight and that we struggle against. And anyway, Vonnegut wrote, um, you know what Celine said about the Nobel Prize? Every chap ass in Europe has one. Where's mine? <laughs> and uh, anyway, and then he died not long after. But I, I always thought, like, I have this, I have a correspondence with my childhood hero. That's and awesome. It, and it was the kind of correspondence where I had to finish a novel and then he would send me a postcard. But that seemed about, you know, that seemed about uh, equitable to me. Yeah, that's the right proportion. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's been so fun talking with you. Yeah, thanks, uh, Brad. Congratulations Brad. on the new novel, and uh, best of luck with the next one. I can't wait to see uh, what you come up with with, yeah. with regard to generational poverty and thanks. Yeah. trying to reconcile these uh, these debates. I'm kind of curious myself. It'll probably be something else entirely, so <laughs> don't hold me to that. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is the program. That is Jess Walter. Go get his book. It is a novel. It is called Beautiful Ruins. It is available now from Harper. You can find Jess on the web at JessWalter.com. He's on Facebook. Uh, he's also on Twitter, and his handle, I believe, is at Jess underscore underscore Walter. This show has a website. It's OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at OtherPeoplePod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence, and if you want to email me something, uh, whatever that might be, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And hey, if you enjoy the program, please remember to go over to iTunes and rate it and review it. it. takes two minutes. Very simple thing to do, and it really does help the cause. And of course, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, what am I going to do now? I'm going to go out into the heat. That's my next order of duty. I'm going uh, to engage with the desert. I'm going to meet the sun on its own terms here in the Los Angeles basin. I'm going to subject my pasty whiteness to some infrared radiation, and I'm going to inhale some smog. Please remember that Samuel Beckett died of complications from emphysema and that Albert Einstein once gave private lectures to small groups of people in Prague, and among those people was Franz Kafka. That's it for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back again soon. I hope you're having a good summer. I hope uh, you're not taking things too seriously. And if you are taking things too seriously, please picture yourself taking things too seriously on a tiny moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam.